Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. We're talking about what it means to advance in the Christian faith. And it's remarkable to me how the, the sermons, without a lot of discussion before, have certainly struck a theme in my own heart. You know, the, the preeminence of Christ, the passion to fight sin, the practicality that theology not only matters, but works out into the everyday decisions of your life now. And as Brian was saying, those, those decisions that you make now actually create a trajectory and actually create a future destination for how you're going to be next week, next month, next year, next decade, based on the decisions that you're making now. Frankly, you ought to get that, that uh, sermon that, that Brian did before lunch and sit down with a small group and listen to that again and talk about that and take notes and say, so what for me? What, what am I going to do with that? Well, now we're coming to a, a section, I think, in, in our progression of looking at when we do this, when we treasure Jesus and we apply the doctrine of, of uh, mortification of sin, when we look at practical sanctification, what, what does that look like in the world? Let me get you up to speed. John 13 through 17 are a remarkable uh, section of God's word. I want you to just look, well, you know, I shouldn't have had you turn there. Turn to the very last verse in John for a moment. A lot of people read this verse, but I have for years misunderstood and misinterpreted this verse because I, 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 I didn't look carefully at it. John, Jesus' best friend on the planet, says this. Uh, and there were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus was, John was Jesus' best friend. He saw him closer than anyone. He was the one laying on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. And he says, if everything that could be written about Jesus were written, and I used to think all the books in the world would be filled with that. That's not what he says. Look at the hyperbole here. The world could not contain all the books. The whole world, every mountain, every valley, every store, every building would be full of encyclopedic volumes of the glories of the Son of Man. It's remarkable, isn't it? Now think about this. John who said that only wrote a book as we break it down into 21 chapters. Now that's remarkable. Of everything that John knew, he decided, I'm only going to include this. He writes about 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been uh, written. So he didn't need to chronicle all that. He's now looking theologically and more personally. Out of 21 chapters that he wrote, knowing that the whole world could be full of books written about Jesus, out of 21 chapters, now just think this through, five of those chapters are devoted to one conversation. Now, I think if you do the calculus on that, this is a pretty important conversation, isn't it? If he could have written, he could have written a lot more. But this is impressive. John 13 through 17 contains what theologians and commentators call the final discourse or the upper room discourse. It starts in the upper room. The conversation takes itself after chapter 14 down into the, across the Kidron Valley into uh, down probably through those, those vineyards where Jesus would talk about the vine and the branches down the bottom of the Kidron Valley, crosses over, goes into the gro grove of olive, olive trees, Gethsemane, and that's where he'll have his, his uh, final uh, prayer time with the disciples and his father before the trials began and would take them all night. He would be uh, finally tried in the morning, executed at about nine the next day. 
This is the last conversation. Here's what's interesting. You ever thought about this? This conversation is not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. And it's not in Luke. Oh, they record about this conversation and they record things about the institution of the Last Supper, uh, different parts of Peter's denial that, that were not contained in here. John chose not to do that because it was already recorded. But he gives us five chapters of conversation. The last chapter of which isn't really just a conversation. It's, a, it's the record of a prayer that Jesus prays. But the disciples are on their heels. They, they don't get it. How do we get in the upper room? Jesus says to them, coming up from Jericho, they're coming up that, that steep climb towards Jericho, and it says that he was ahead of them. Mark 10 says, ahead of them, boldly going to Jerusalem, even though they knew there's persecution waiting for them. He was going ahead of them. And he keeps telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes. They are going to try me, and they are going to kill me. He says this to them over and over. On the final climb, he's telling them that, going up to Jerusalem uh, right before uh, the, the, the final week of his life. He tells them that, and a few feet behind him are James and John. And they say, um, hey, that's great. Listen, when you're the king, where do we get to sit? I'm gonna die. Okay, great. Now, when you're the Messiah and you're on the temple, Ruling and reigning. I want to be on your right. I want to be on your left. In fact, mom's going to ask you about that. They sent their mom to ask him about that. I'm going to die. Where am I going to sit? And it says they were arguing with each other about this. All the way into this last supper. They're arguing about that. While they are arguing, Jesus gets up, takes his outer toga off, gets a towel, a long basin, gets a, a pail of water, and washes the disciples' feet, which no one had thought to do before that. And he serves them. He gets to Peter. You know the story. And the, uh, Peter says, you're not washing my feet. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't have anything to do with me. He says, then give me a whole bath. I'm in, whatever it is. Gotta love Peter. All or nothing. Peter was all or nothing. As this supper progresses, though, Jesus says something, and uh, he's just continually saying things they're, 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 they just can't figure out. I'm going away, I'm going to be gone, I'm going to be gone. What does that mean? Then Judas, he identifies, there will be one who will betray me. And they're all looking around, who's it going to be? And they're even, they're even whispering over Peter saying, hey, John, who's close to Jesus, ask him who the one who is going to betray him. Doing hand motions, who is it going to be? Judas somehow escapes without everybody being alarmed. He goes to betray the Lord. After he betrays the Lord, now let's go over back to John Chapter um, 13, uh, verse 30. This is remarkable. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. That was Judas. He went out to betray the Lord. Therefore, when he had gone out, Judas had, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God has glorified in him. We could spend the rest of the month talking about that verse. We usually think of the glorification of the Son of God when he goes to heaven and he's got his full glory. He's shining brighter than the sun like Revelation chapter one says. But Jesus is now, Judas is gone. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Why? Because the hourglass had now been turned over heading for his execution on the cross. Now, he says, now the glory for which God intended Jesus to come and display was about to be fully on stage. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And he will glorify him immediately, not just in the, glo- in the future, but now on the cross. Little children, he calls them little, little, hey guys, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's wanting to give them the final instruction on love, which, by the way, in the next chapter, he'll come back and talk about more. He says, okay, I'm going to be gone, so I need to take, last lesson, eye contact. Guys, eye contact. Let me see you. I, I want to tell you boys, tell you guys, this is it. This is the final lesson on love. But Peter said, love? What are you talking about? Um, Lord, excuse me, where are you going? Missed the whole thing on love. I mean, <laughs> I want to tell you what the most important thing, everyone's going to know. No, where are you going? Getting a little nervous about this. You've been talking about going and dying and now you're saying it's not going to be long. He's starting to say, wow, maybe there is something to this thing that Jesus has been telling us. He says, where I go now, you cannot follow, but you will follow me later. Huh. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. The disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. (laughs) Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? I can just see the Lord probably smiling. Will you really? Tell you what. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you actually deny that you know me three times. There should be no chapter division between 13 and 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do you think they would have some troubled hearts? Everybody outside is mad they want to kill Jesus. I'm going to leave you guys, which would make them say, um, time out, Lord. If they want you and we're associated with you and you're gone, I think they're going to want us. He knew they were troubled. They should have been troubled. He says, don't relax, guys. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he gives them some comfort. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you will be also. And I love, Jesus is so wonderfully, divinely clever. And he says that, I'm gonna go to my Father's house, prepare a place for you guys. And, verse four, hey, and by the way, you know the way I'm going. We know what that means now. He's going to heaven. That's not what they thought there. When he said, my father's house, what were they thinking? They were thinking where the upper room was, that 700 yards from there, 700 yards was the temple. They could have gone down King David Street. They could have gone around the the East Gate. Uh, They could have gone around to the South and come up the steps. I think they were thinking, he's going to go to the temple, finally establish he's the Messiah. He's been, they've been telling him, uh, he, uh, they've been prodding him about being the, the, the king here all week. And they think, okay, he's going to go, he's going to do it. He's, basically, they thought, he's going to go get a head start, get things established. We're going to go meet him. Which way is he going? Which street do we take? Because we're in trouble and we don't want to be mugged by the crowd, by the mob. We love to talk about Thomas with the phrase doubting Thomas. Well, at this point, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, Peter's awfully quiet. He doesn't say anything. Jesus says, and you, I'm gonna go prepare a place and you know where I'm going. Silence. 
until Thomas says, Look, um, <clears throat> Lord, um, um, we, um, we do not know where you're going, and how, how do we know the way? Literally, how do we know the road, the path? That's brave, not just doubting Thomas, some courage here. And Jesus said to them, and when Jesus starts speaking, I think they were expecting to say, go to King David Street, take a right, go down. He says, he says, I'm the way. I'm the, the, the Greek word way is path, road, trail. I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no man comes. Now he doesn't talk about the father's house. Now he makes it personal. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Hello, Philip. Show us the father. He says, come on, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. That leads them down into the, they, they leave, by the way, at, um, at the end of chapter 14. Get up, let's go from here. They go toward the, uh, the Kidron Valley, which you have been over on the western slope of the Temple Mount and uh, probably full of vineyards, which would have made perfect sense when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, has this conversation with him as he makes his way down there. Now they're probably at the bottom of the Kidron Valley when they have their final discussion, their final discussion, uh, 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 admonition from Jesus. And then in chapter 17, Jesus prays. I want us to isolate a part of this prayer, but understand this prayer is like nothing they've ever heard. It's the most complete prayer we have of Jesus in in the New Testament. And there's so much wonder. When you look at the high priestly prayers it's called in John 17, get this, you are eavesdropping on the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? How does the Trinity interact? What does the Trinity say to one another? What does the, the, uh, the, the Son of God say to God the Father? We get to hear it. It's remarkable. I wish we had the rest of the month to actually go through this. Um, my favorite verse, my life verse, is ver- chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. You would expect Him to define eternal life by living forever. You know, eternal life, eternal forever, life living. He defines eternal life, but look how he does it. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Bizarre prayer. Ever notice this? Bizarre, absolutely bizarre prayer. If I were praying about the preaching today, what would it sound like to you if I did this? If I was praying and I said, Lord, we were thankful for today. I want to thank you uh, uh, for giving us the preacher, Rick Holland, and give him, a, give him a, a, a good sermon today. And I'm the one praying. You would say, that's awkward. <laughs> and yet Jesus prays in the third person. Is that striking? He is praying and the disciples are hearing that he is praying, and this is eternal life that they may know you, you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent, announcing forever that he is actually self attesting that he's the Christ, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. That's absolutely confirming and affirming and assuring to them. He prays in third person. It's cool. It's weird, but it's cool. And then he goes through talking about the, uh, uh, his own reunion with the Father. God is going to reverse the kenosis. You know what kenosis is? If you've studied Philippians, 
when God humbles himself and becomes a man, he set aside his glory. Theologians say he set aside the use of some of his divine attributes, walking around on the earth, bumping into people in Nazareth. Excuse me, excuse me. By the way, that was God. It's the creator. Just didn't put his glory on braggadocious display. He's been doing this for 33 years and he is longing to have his glory restored to its pre-incarnate state. And he says, Lord, glorify me again. I can't wait to be glorified with you where I am. And he talks about when the kenosis is reversed and he'll stand in glory. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that John is so affectionate, laying on his breast and he's, he's so kind and gracious and they love each other and they're so friendly and pal and the pals, and then he gets to Revelation 1 and Jesus, John sees Jesus and he falls on his face like a dead man. Same guy. What's the difference? His glory was fully on display. Well, he talks about his restoration. Then he talks about um, the disciples and their final, he prays for the disciples in the final part of his prayer and getting them ready for their mission. Look at chapter 17, verse 16. We're gonna look at these three verses, four verses very briefly. He's praying and Jesus says, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, holify them, make them holy. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves might be sanctified in truth. Every enterprise an effort, effort wants to have some identifying marks. You know this very well. You see the golden arches, you think McDonald's. Insignias, flags, trademarks. Products are known for their branding. A green circle with a white long haired girl usually means Starbucks or maybe an alien invasion of Rapunzel Martians. A red can with a white wavy line usually means Coke. Athletic uh, uh, teams are known for their color schemes, nicknames, mascots, fight songs, etc. Orange and white always means the Tennessee Volunteers, and don't you ever forget it. <laughs> Policeman is identified by a badge and a uniform. A Marine is easily identified by his dress blues. Uh, a guest or, or someone who, who uh, wants you to know their name is usually identified with one of those hello, my name is stickers. Obvious and easy examples. But what would you say the identifying branding mark of a Christian is? Jesus is praying in this final prayer. He's concerned about that. He's been instructing them. He's now turned their worldview upside down. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to pray for you. In a few hours, he's going to be on the cross. And he makes sure that his final prayer is, Lord, I, Father, I want the world to know that they belong to me because their signature, their branding, their reputation is so clear. Let me ask you a question. What is your Christian brand? How do people know you're a Christian? I mean, do you know the Christian handshake? Do you, know, uh, do you not have 666 tattooed onto your forehead? I mean, how do they know you're a Christian? Do you have a fish on your car? I mean, well, how do you know? Um, you know, I was thinking about something, talking, about, talking to my wife about this. This is a remarkable thing. I, this, this is totally for free, okay? I, but I wonder what people think about my spiritual state or if they ever do. I, I can't think of a time in the last two decades 
when someone has witnessed to me thinking I was an unbeliever? It kind of makes me sad. I wonder how many people I've sat next to or will sit by on the plane. It just, it's just a mind-numbing thing. How do people know you're a believer? What are the marks that you really belong to Jesus? Is it the cross jewelry you wear? Having a fish sticker on the back of your car? Is it wearing t-shirts with verses screen printed on them? This is Jesus' final prayer with his disciples before his suffering, hours away from arrest. Next morning, he'll be on the cross. The next afternoon, he will be in heaven. Remarkably, he spends the majority of this prayer, by the way, for the 11 friends who are there, Judas having been gone. He's not even praying for himself. If you knew you were gonna die, wouldn't you think your prayer would occupy yourself a bit? Most of his prayer occupies his friends. The Lord finishes this section and he prays for their identification, their branding, their signature. He doesn't give them cross necklaces. He doesn't issue them a jersey with a number and their name on the back. He doesn't print business cards for them, nor does he give them name tags marked apostle. No, he prays that they will have the critical, most identifying, loudest signature of being a Christian. What is it? Sanctification. Holiness. Separation from the world, separation to God in affections, in lifestyle, in decisions. There are two meanings of the word holy or two meanings of the word sanctify rather. It's to be morally blameless and to be demonstrably separated from the world. In fact, holiness is one of the most misunderstood concepts of the Christian faith. It has two dimensions, two aspects. The one has to do with simple separation, consecration, to isolate something for the purpose of protection and a special purpose. In a spiritual sense, this is separation from the world and to God for his use. The other is you're above reproach. You're pursuing sinlessness, not sinfulness. Holiness means that you're fighting, like Scott said today. You're fighting sin. You're in the battle. If you felt that today like I did, I feel like, yeah, I get it. I have done it. Boy, I feel that. That's a good thing. If you're waiting till you're perfect, that's called heaven, not being holy on this earth. So as we look at these, uh, these few verses, I want to find with you, if you're taking notes, three sanctified marks of the gospel mission. How will people know that you really belong to the Lord? Three sanctified marks of the gospel mission. First one's kind of cool. Ready? Number one, an alien identity. This is not the X-Files. An alien identity. Verse 16, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is virtually a repetition of what he said two verses earlier at the end of verse 14, by the way. The alien identification of the disciples is heavy on his mind and heart. They are not of this world. Notice that there's a plural, they. And what's in focus here is being aliens on the world is not a solitary confinement. We're in this together. That's why Christians bond and band together. Even more, being an alien is, not, is being not a part of this world and the result of our relationship and fellowship to Jesus personally and our relationship to the world. 
It's one of the oddest thoughts. The creator was not of this world, yet he was not, the one who, who made this world was not of this world in terms of this sinful sense, but he wasn't even welcome on his own planet. I mean, Colossians 1 says Jesus was the one who created the world, the second person of the Trinity. He wasn't even welcome on the planet he created. If he wasn't welcome, how do you think that his followers will be embraced? 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. They're not of this world. What's the world? It's simply the disposition of people to be against God and his word. It's the worldview that we're born with. Anti-God. Everyone is born with an anti-God worldview. I have three sons, as I told you. I'm trying, I'm constantly trying to teach my boys how to be godly, how to be men, how to be, how to be, how to do, how to do. I, I was in between the service today. I get a... a I get a phone call from my, my middle son who, I, praise God, he's doing some yard work and uh, he's got this vacuum blower that also can be a, 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 I mean, a, it's a blower that can be a vacuum so you can, you know, the leaves that are in the bottom of a, of a root, the roots of a bush, something you can kind of suck them out of there. And so he says, dad, I need your help. So what's wrong? He says, the, the, the vacuum's jammed. I said, why? He goes, well, there's some in it. <laughs> what? He says, well, I didn't see it. I'm thinking, this is a snake. This is cool. I said, what, what is it? He says, well, there was, a, there was a plastic bag. I didn't see it. And I sucked it up. And now it's wrapped all around the gears. And I, oh, great. <laughs> you, as high schoolers, you might understand this. So you know what his conclusion was? Hey, I'll take care of this next week. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why God gave you two hands. You can pick the leaves up. Just do it yourself. That's why I hate soccer. God gave us, why can't you use these in soccer? I mean, who invents a game that you can't use your hands? Let's, let's play, okay. No, don't use your hands. Why? These are great appendages. I, why would you not use these in a game? Man. I didn't have to tell my sons, though, ever, how to disobey all the things I tried to teach them. It wasn't like they were 18, like when they were 18 months old. Okay, son, you know, my oldest son, Luke. Okay, today, got ready? Today, I'm gonna teach you how to disobey. Okay, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna put the keys on the table and I'm gonna, you're gonna reach for them and I'm gonna say no and you're gonna pick them up anyway. Okay, let's try that. Ready? No. You got it. Good, good job. Now you know how to sin. Now you know how to obey. Disobey. I've never said you know how to obey to my sons. You never, kids don't have to be taught how to sin. Isn't that interesting? I hear parents, I have parents, you know, well, we, we, uh, we just want to keep our kids protected from the world, keep them morally innocent. Listen, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. I love telling parents, you can't do anything to mess your kids up. They come that way. That's good news, by the way, because if sin is not the problem, the gospel is not the solution. How do you interact with the world? Listen to Martin Luther. I love this. Talking about the world, he says, to God, this world is only preparation, the scaffolding for yonder world. A wealthy builder 
Much have much scaffolding for a house. And, and as you see in some buildings today, and back then you would build a superstructure around the buildings. You climb up the scaffolding around a house to build it and then you take the scaffolding down. A wealthy builder must have much scaffolding for a house. When a house is finished, he tears down the scaffolding. An artist must first rub and mix his colors and clean his brush. A barber must first wash his hands and strop his razor. These activities are nothing but preparation. In like manner, God has made this whole world as a preparation for yonder life. I love that, yonder life, heaven. There are, there, there are matters... Um, their matters, uh, what matters is only how we prepare for that next world. Tear the scaffolding down. You know, how much do we live for this world? You know why we live for this world? Because we really think this is it. You know, heaven seems boring, harps, white. Everybody in white seems kind of boring. No, no, heaven is everything you've ever enjoyed multiplied times infinity. You like to hike? Can you imagine hiking in the new heavens and new earth? You like to have fellowship? You like to eat? Imagine what that's going to be like. All you can eat with no caloric consequences. <laughs> I mean, Jesus described, he says, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. He knows that. We have an alien identity. We don't belong to this world. This is not where we live. This is not our, our home. Secondly, looking at our identifying marks, a necessary holiness. Verse 17, sanctify them, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. Holy mission requires individual holiness, both in godly character and unilateral direction for our lives. Sanctify means to set aside, to set toward God. And here is the uh, uh, interesting connection of our effort and God's work. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. What do you do with God's word? What do you do? Love what Brian was saying today about the, pa- the, the, the passion that you should have for being in and around listening to and reading God's word. What, what are you doing? You understand, guys, that this, having this is a, as, it's really about 200 years old Go back into the Puritan era and before that, and there are usually uh, only wealthy people had their own Bible. Sometimes a whole church had one Bible and it was chained to the pulpit. The concept of a Christian having his own Bible is a relatively recent development in, um, in redemptive history. As Brian was saying today, most of them, they didn't have their own. They just heard it read and they went home. All they had was their, 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 their oratory uh, conception of God's word. You have a copy. You have multiple copies. I have multiple copies on my phone. If you're sanctified, you'll be sanctified because God's word and his thinking replaces the worldview you're born with by understanding God's word, what he said. Do do you read the Bible? I mean, do, do you read the Bible? It's amazing that you can. I mean, I go back to, if we could talk to any of the apostles, even and say, you know, one day I will have a book leather covered with the entirety of God's word in one place. They have said, you know what they have said? Wow, 
while. Go back 250, 300 years. I have multiple copies of the Bible. These people would have said, I can't believe you do anything in the world except read your Bible. Why would you even go to work? Why, I, I would be so absorbed in reading God's word. William Tyndale killed for the fact that we hold this ourselves. Remarkable privilege to have and hold God's word. But what do you do with it? I hope you don't do what my, my buddy did. I, I wrestled in high school and college and I had this guy who, who wanted the power of God's word. I kid you not, I am not making this up. Before our wrestling meets, we'd be in the, in the locker room, final instructions from the coach. And uh, there was my friend over there. He'd take a Bible and he'd rub it all over him. And finally I said, dude, what are you doing? He says, I want the power of God on me. He was dead serious. We laugh at that, don't we? Do you believe this is the power of God in your life? Then why does it stay in your car and stay on your chest of drawers? Or sometimes you can't even find it. Oh, we may laugh about, oh, that's silly. He would rub it all over himself. But do we do the opposite? Do we look at it, read it? Uh, you know, you were talking about how, how your devotions have changed, Brian. Mine have changed from, I used to read it through once a year. And the last two years I've done something different. I've actually continued on my yearly Bible reading, but I've done something different. And I've taken just a few verses every day and read them really, really slowly. So I can say, wow. Sometimes I'm tempted by reading multiple chapters. I don't know if this, has this ever happened to you where you read like three or four chapters of God's word, you kind of finish, you go, what, what did I, what was I, what was I reading? Because your mind is somewhere else. Whatever it takes if you want to be sanctified, it must include pursuit of God through his word. How important is sanctification? Hebrews twelve fourteen says, if you're not sanctified, if you're not holy, you'll never see the Lord. And if your sanctification comes from reading the word, it's a pretty important. You say, is this the read your Bible sermon more, Rick? Yep, that's it, you caught me. Read your Bible more, a lot, because you can Jesus prayed that God was sanctified through the pursuit of his truth. Number three, an earnest example, an alien identity, a necessary holiness. The third sanctified mark of the gospel mission is an earnest example. This is looking at the example of Christ. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus' mission and his earthly mission was our pattern, our example. In chapter 10, verse 36, we find out that the father actually sanctified and sent out Jesus, his son. Jesus was speaking to his accusers in John 10, 36. And he says, do you say of him who the, whom the father sanctified and sent into the world? God sent Jesus, Jesus sends us. He's our example. Sure, he's our payment for sin. He's our atonement. But the book of Hebrews tells us he's our example. He's the example of faith. So let's, let's, let's ask a few questions. How, how are you doing in your pursuit of the word? How are you doing in your stiff arm of the world? How are you doing in your, your stiff arming of the world? Now this doesn't mean that you have to put on some, you know, brown gunny sack and look like some monk. You can live in the world, you just can't be of it. Um, it's like Brian was saying, well, what do you listen to? 
tell you a lot about yourself. I like to get in students' cars without them knowing it and hit the presets. I wonder what, what stations do they, do they consistently go to? Um, you would be so bored in my car. ESPN, Sports Center, Talk Radio. <laughs> and you laugh, but that's, I just don't know how to set the dial. That's why. I, my son teaches me how to run my, my, my television. I'm, I'm trying to watch Duck Dynasty the other night, which is a good show to watch, by the way. And uh, that's the only applause I've gotten all the whole weekend. So, so thank you. <laughs> I don't even know how to turn it on. Where is it? Devo, Devo. What is, what is that? Where, how do you, is it recorded? How do you find this? And my 13-year-old son goes, oh, come on, Dad. And he's like, and I felt four years old. My, my oldest son teaches me how to use my iPhone all the time. And, and graciously calls me an idiot. Graciously. Just says, Dad, why, why, are, why are you, why, why do they allow you to have this? First of all. I'm, I'm embarrassed for you, there's nothing wrong with being in that part of the world, enjoying the, the, the things. That Ecclesiastes says, enjoy the things that God has created and enjoy them. But it's when they begin to influence us morally. We were talking about this at lunch yesterday. I'm, re, I'm preaching through Romans and there's an unbelievable verse at the end of Romans 1 and I'll, I'll let us land after this. It's being a part of the world is not only sinning in the world, but look at, listen to this one verse. It gives a whole list of the things that the world uh, lives like and at the end of Romans 1 it says, not only do such, those who practice such things are they worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, we, give, we just don't mind sin around us. Now, I'm not saying you should go around and correct everybody in the world, but it should bother. Does sin bother you? Or have you become numb to it? When you become numb to it, you stop being a signature for the gospel mission. People don't say, wow, if God is right, and he is, if Paul was inspired, and he was, if you do this right, 1 Corinthians 1 says, you are gonna be called a fool. For what you believe and for how you live. Are you ready for that? That's your signature in the world. What you believe and how you live, the world will say, that's foolish. You don't have sex till your marriage? That's stupid. How can you know if you love that person? That's the world's thinking. You don't go here. You don't do that. You don't enjoy the drugs and the drinking and everything else. You, you won't try this. You won't, well, you're right. Why? Because I have a master and a Lord who's looking out for me and he instructs me that fleeing those things is not only good for me, but brings him glory. I mean, what do you say when people say, hey, you want to you drink? And you say no. Well, I mean, what, what's your answer? Do you have a compelling gospel inviting answer to those kind of things? Those situations are what this passage is about. You're sanctified in the world. The signature of your life is that you belong to God. So belong to God. No one does this perfectly. But we correct and make restitution and ask forgiveness when we don't. Do you represent the signature of Jesus' redemptive work in your life to the world? He intends for you, bizarre as it sounds, you are a missionary in your world. 
The mission is the great commission, and in your world, you've been sent by God through Christ on behalf of the gospel to live and to think differently than the world so that they say, what is that about? And we have an answer. We're ready to give an answer for the hope where? Within us. You cannot serve the world and the Lord at the same time. If I can use Scott's illustration, you can't, you can't get out of the stream, guys. You are that trout backed up under that rock and Satan is pulling lures, number four rooster tails, across your face all day long. And not only in your face, but in your mind all day long. Are you trying to be a gospel signature? Can I ask you to bow with me for a second? You guys have been so good. It's always hard to think and to be focused after lunch. Isn't it sweet and isn't it precious that the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted the reputation of his saving work to you? He has entrusted the reputation of his salvation to you. That's incredible. What are we doing with such stewardship? Father, cause us to rejoice in those places we have traction and to repent in those places that we have been not neat and accurate signatures of your work. Inspire and encourage and equip this group of young people, so that they understand you have handed them a baton and they should run the race with endurance. Give them repentance and give them hope. And give them mutual encouragement with each other to move each other and to assure each other that colliding with the world is okay because you hold us with your very hands. In Jesus' name, amen.